When I travel, I really love buying postcards. The cheaper and the cheesier, the better. Here are a few that I picked up when my family drove to Oregon and back earlier this year. Um, you'll see this one I really enjoyed. If you can't tell, that's roadkill. Uh, here's another one we found at the same place in Wyoming. It's uh, what you have as a road hog when you get a little farther west. And then here, the next one is my favorite, elk. I think it's the most hilarious of all of the ones that we found. I don't know why. It just makes me laugh every time I see it. Well, the problem with postcards is I never really know what to write on a postcard. They seem too short to really be meaningful in any way. So I often buy them and then collect them and put them in a shelf, and I never send them when I get back home. Second John is the second shortest letter in all of the Bible in terms of word count. It clocks in at just 13 verses, which is just around 302 words in its original language, and it can be read out loud in 1 minute and 22 seconds at a normal pace. Sometimes, big gifts come in small packages. This little book right here punches way above its weight class, and it teaches us how to understand the nature of truth and love and how they fit together. So please follow along as I read now, beginning at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your house, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray once again that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word. Lord, I ask that today you would help us to come together around this word, around this eternal scripture with a heart of all seriousness. And Lord, I pray that as we come humbly and as we come earnestly seeking your face, Lord, that you would do just what we've been praying through our singing, that you would show us Christ. For, Lord, it is him that we are here to meet in the text. We desire to know you more. We desire to understand you more. We desire to have our minds altered and changed in accordance with what is true. 
that we might see rightly the reality that you have set before us. Lord, help us not to be deceived and help us not to support those who are deceivers. Lord, I pray that you would help us learn through this passage how we can graciously balance love and truth and how they work together for the building of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we see with most letters, this one opens with a greeting. However, it's an interesting book in the sense that this book has no specifics given. There are no uh, particular locations given in the book, and there are no specific names of any people, either sender or recipient. It's a common practice for John to refer to himself as something other than his own name. In the gospel that we see, in the gospel of John, he refers to himself as the other disciple, or he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Here, he simply uses the office that he holds at his local church, the office of an elder. And I believe he does this because he is attempting to avoid any focus of himself in the text, but to give all attention to his king, Jesus. But the question is, who is this mystery woman that he is writing to? There have been a lot of suggestions made throughout the centuries. Some of the more hopeless romantic types suggest that this might have been some kind of a romantic interest of John. However, I don't think there is any internal evidence in this text to suggest that would be accurate. I think that is probably not true. I think there is evidence actually to the contrary, considering that he says that he is grateful to hear that some of her children are walking in the truth, not that some of our children are walking in the truth. Also, you will note that he says that when he is uh, excited for what is going on with them, he says, as are all the others who are walking in truth. In other words, his relationship to her seems to be identical to all the other believers' relationship to her. Other people suggest that this was somebody who read the book of 1 John, and she was convicted of its truth, but was confused about how to implement, so she had written to John with a question saying, I am someone who hosts as a hospitable, a hospitable Christian, and I know that when people come to me, I'm supposed to have discernment about who to let into my home and who not to, but you also tell me that I'm to love everyone that says that he is a brother, according to 1 John chapter 4. So what am I supposed to do here, John? Am I supposed to let them in, or am I not supposed to let them in? Do I show them hospitality, or do I shut the door? And so it's possible that there is an, a literal woman who was sending this letter and who says, John, I need clarity. And so John writes this short letter as a quick response. That's very possible. However, I think it is more likely that John is not writing to an individual, but he is writing to a church. It's not unusual for the local expression of the bride of Christ to be referred to in the feminine way, as a woman. So I am suggesting that the elect lady means the church and all the elect of that place. This would help make sense of the final line as well, saying, the children of your elect sister greet you. In other words, our church greets your church. This was something that was very something common in all of John's writings, as well as all of Paul's writings. The saints at this location greet you. So perhaps this is simply a way to write to the entire body. The important thing to note is the recipient is receiving instruction regarding truth and love. That's the main theme of this book. It is how those two things fit together. In the first six verses, 
the word truth is used five times and love is used four times. That is extreme repetition. If you have a good memory, you might be saying to yourself, wow, this sounds really familiar. This sounds a lot like what we heard back on April 19th when Pastor Caleb preached through John, our third John. And if you're saying that to yourself, first of all, I applaud you for remembering. I assume that's most of you have forgotten. But you would also be absolutely right in thinking that that was the case because both of these books focus in on the relationship between love and truth. Third John teaches us to give support and to honor those who are faithfully carrying out the gospel. For example, there, John, in the central passage of that text, writes, We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. He is saying to sacrificially serve those who are carrying the gospel. But where third John is teaching us to support those who are committed to the gospel, second John is teaching us that loving someone in truth means rejecting those who are distorting the gospel. When John uses the word truth, it's important to understand that he is not merely talking about concepts. He is not talking about simply being aware of the way things are. He refers to the children as walking in truth. This indicates that knowledge is not enough. He is indicating that those who truly know and believe in the truth live in accordance with what they know to be true. If you really believe that God is who he says he is, you believe that he is good, then you will do the things he sets out before you. That is why John can say in the book of 1 John that his commands are not burdensome. Look at how he fleshes out this idea in relation to love in verse 6. He says, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Walking in truth looks like obeying the Lord's commandments. It means walking in a way that accords with the reality God has set forth before us in creation. He made a right way to live, and he made a wrong way to live. And walking in the truth means walking in the right way to live, in obedience and love for the Lord. In other words, you cannot have truth without love or love without truth. If either part is missing, then your life will result in a dangerous pattern of sin. Warren Wearsby is noted as saying, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. John is going to spend verses 7 through 11 emphasizing that the reality of tolerance of heresy is actually in and of itself a grievous sin. Now, this is important in our day and age where tolerance seems to be one of the chief uh, values that our culture delights in. We must be a tolerant people. You will see here, in particular, the church that John is writing to was getting bombarded with false teachers who were carrying with them a false gospel. In verse 7, he states, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. You can see what their error was. They did not believe that Jesus Christ was fully man. They had a rejection of the humanity of Jesus. These were possibly the Docetists or uh, the pre-Gnostic people who believed that everything spiritual was good and everything physical was bad. Therefore, they argued Jesus could not have been truly human like we are because to be human must equal evil. 
And you will notice that all of the major heresies that have ever existed get the Trinity wrong in some way, shape, or form. It is an attack on the nature of the Godhead. And most of them are primarily rooted in a false belief about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. In this case, they were acknowledging his deity. I mean, think of these people. They come in and they, they recognize Jesus. Yes, he's God. We can declare with all joy in our hearts and with all smile on our face and with all truth, we believe Jesus is God. And they were preaching that he died and that he rose again and that he was necessary for salvation. You must believe in this God, Jesus, to be saved. And they would have agreed with this church about everything they did in terms of practicing the Lord's Supper and baptism and worship gatherings. They would have been in agreement on most things. And you can imagine someone saying to themselves at this local church, well, it seems like they've got so much right. It just seems like they've got such a pattern of, of correct doctrine. There's just this little thing here that they seem to get wrong. You're, you're, we're so close theologically, this little sticking point shouldn't be something that divides us. Maybe we can just agree to disagree, and we can work together for the sake of the kingdom of God. Well, John clearly views this as an urgent problem, and it's one that requires him to send, with great difficulty, a messenger with this little letter so that he might get the news to this person or this church immediately Notice he makes clear in verse 12 that he intends to come visit them and to speak face-to-face -face about many things. Yet he must interject immediately to say, do not let this continue. John does not downplay the danger. He instead breaks the glass and he pulls the fire alarm and he says, these people that deny Christ's humanity are not godly. They are not worthy of your attention. They are not able to receive your hospitality. Do not accept them. He says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. I cannot think of harsher language that he could employ. What does the Bible say about the antichrist? Well, first it states that there are many who bear that title and that they have been with us ever since the first century. Consider what John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. The main way that Antichrist figures are depicted in the scriptures is not what most modern books and end-time novels will suggest. This image of Antichrist is much closer to Joel Osteen than it is to Elon Musk. It would be far more akin to the Pope than it would be to Bill Gates. These are Antichrist people who are professing a Jesus but one that is quite distorted. Yes, we believe in the, in the gospel, they say. We believe in the good news of the Bible, they say. We acknowledge these words, but the Jesus that they believe in has a failure to understand the true, righteous Jesus who came as fully God and fully man to redeem his people from their sins. And that we are saved based on grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. Consider what it means if Christ never came in the flesh. If Jesus were not fully man, then none of us could ever be saved. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's righteousness or obedience many will be made righteous. The crime has been committed by man. Therefore, the payment must be made by a man. We see that argument in Romans chapter 5 and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If Jesus had not been human, his death on the cross would not have been a true death. 
Jesus was truly and fully man. We see that in the fact that he was born of a virgin. Physically conceived, we see in Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. We see that he was born of this woman. Just like any of you or I were born out of a human body. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. We see that he grew up like you and I do. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. He lived a perfect life of obedience, which fulfilled all righteousness. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. He felt hungry because he was a man. He felt sleepy and he slept through a storm because he was exhausted because he was a man. On the cross, he said, I thirst because he was a man. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He was a man. And cutting out this one part of the gospel distorts it to a point of making it void. Don't mess with the message, John is saying. The gospel is of first importance. These enemies of Christ came bearing a false gospel, and it might have looked like a small difference, but he is saying that tiny crack in the foundation destroys the whole building. That one little flaw that you see to be so minuscule is so great a chasm that it separates heaven from hell. Those who believe in that Jesus are on their way to destruction. These people are antichrist and enemies of the king. Do not let them near you. John explains that there is a reward for all who continue on in the truth. Verse 9, he says, For everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That is a simple way to explain those who believe in a false gospel. They don't have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He's saying to them, you have what you need. You have Jesus. You have a relationship with God. But now he answers what we are to do if we encounter those who preach a false gospel. There were many who were traveling around at that time who were coming from city to city, and they would say, I have good news. I have a new message. I have a word for you. And the church oftentimes was confused about whether or not to accept this individual. And here he says what you must do if you encounter someone who approaches your church with this kind of false thinking. This is where we find the main point of John's message. This is the command that he finds so important that he cannot wait until he arrives to tell them. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, the gospel that John teaches, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. It's important to understand here what the word greeting means in this context and to this people. It does not mean what you might think in terms of our modern American greeting, where you just walk up and you say hello, or you shake hands. That's not the kind of greeting that he is referencing. An official greeting in somebody's home during this time meant that you would line up your family and you would introduce to them this individual who has now come to your house and will stay there. And you say, listen, this is our friend who has traveled to, this, to us from this place. Similarly, an official greeting in a local church would indicate that the person was your guest. Hey, I want everyone to know I have brought this individual here with me. And you would introduce them in such a way to give greeting. Now, remember that we have already talked about how it is common for one church to give greetings to another. This is not a small concept. In fact, I love that when I travel to other local churches, I tell them, I bring greetings to you from the church in Massapequa, Redeeming Grace Fellowship. 
It is important that we understand this is not declaring that we should avoid speaking or communicating in any way to people who reject the gospel. If we did that, we would never talk to anyone except those who are saved. John is explaining that to do so, I'm sorry, it's important to understand that by announcing that these people are with you and that they are acknowledged by you in the congregation, you are lending them credibility. And here he is declaring, do not give them any credibility. Do not declare that this person is a brother. John is explaining that to do so would be tantamount to preaching a false gospel with your own lips. You're joining in their wicked works if you applaud what they are doing. Do not give them a place to stay. Do not support their efforts. Do not give them food. Do not give them money. Do not give them standing in the church. Instead, reject them and their message. Now, I know that we've been uh, taught many times uh, from this text, perhaps, um, when somebody knocks on your door, there's two people outside, and they say, hey, we're here. We have some information to give you. They're saying, many people will say, do not let those people into your house. Those Mormon or Jehovah Witness missionaries, do not let them into your house. Do not speak to them, because if you do so, you would be breaking this rule, and you would be allowing them into your home, and you would be giving them greeting. That is not what this is saying either. When he says, do not let them into your home, he is speaking about allowing them to stay there and take up residency there temporarily, because in those days, hotels were very uncommon. And those places that were available were often more like brothels than they were like the Holiday Inn. So it wasn't something that they often utilized. When you would travel to a place, you would do everything in your power to avoid staying at a place like that. So here, what we see taking place, very simply, is a declaration that you must not allow these people to take up homestead in your place for a few days or weeks. But if somebody does knock on your door and you say to yourself, listen, I don't know really what they believe, and I really don't know my Bible well enough to defend it. In that case, I would suggest to you, say graciously, thank you, but I would prefer not to talk to you at this time. However, if you do know your Bible very well, and you do know the false doctrine that they teach, and you do understand the heresies of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, or whoever might be at your door, in that case, I would suggest share the gospel with them. If that means letting them into your door and sitting them down on your couch and declaring to them the goodness of Jesus Christ, our God and King, who is eternally with the Father, then in that case, yes, I think you can let them into your home temporarily to share the good news with them. Trust me, if you do that, they will either get saved or they won't come back. That is not what John is speaking about here when he gives warning against allowing them into your house. So what does it mean for you? Look back up to verse 8. And notice this very important statement. Watch yourselves, he says. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The Christian life is not static. When you become a believer, you are called to watch your life and your doctrine, as we see Paul say to his protege Timothy. Don't be a double-minded individual who is able to be blown about by the wind. If you don't know the word then you can be easily convinced of any false doctrine because as soon as somebody starts talking or as soon as you read that book, you'll say, that kind of sounds right, and you'll begin to follow in a way that is just as deadly or dangerous as the heresy that was being taught by these wicked people in John's day. We must understand that we cannot allow ourselves to be ignorant of what God has provided for us to give us guidance. This is the one, this word is what illuminates our path. It is the one that gives us wisdom 
and reveals the mind of God. In particular, at this point, I want to just consider three ways that truth and love work themselves out by presenting three inaccurate beliefs and correcting them. These are things that our culture will tell you is true. These are beliefs and ideas that are creeping into the church right now. They are things that Christians must learn to battle against. They are false ways of thinking, and John is teaching us here not to allow these things to take root in our congregation. Here are the three beliefs. First, there are those who will say, any confrontation of somebody else's sin is unloving. How can I say anything to them? And oftentimes they will say, well, the Bible does say that I need to take the log out of my own eye before I take the speck out of theirs. So I'm not, a, I'm not a perfect person, so I have no right to confront sin in another person. Now, I will say, if you are living in abject, uh, abject um, lies or you are, are living a life of hypocrisy, in that case, certainly you are not the person who should be going out and uh, finding other people's sin. That is exactly what Jesus was talking about. But the Christian life is one of constant confrontation. You are going to be always swimming against the current of the world and the culture, and you're going to feel that. The world tells you to bite your tongue. They tell you to tolerate anything that you know is wrong. But the scripture makes it clear that we have a responsibility to speak up when that confrontation comes. In particular, right now, I am speaking in regards to inside of the church. Titus chapter 2 verse 15 says, rebuke one another. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 tells us, admonish one another. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 tell us how to confront sin in the individual and in front of the whole congregation in terms of church discipline. We discipline one another. These are all commands that we are to follow within the church. We are not permitted to just allow someone to go on haphazardly destroying their life and the body because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This seemingly innocuous, invisible, tasteless uh, thing, this virus, this, this leaven that goes into the bread, it looks the same when you have one lump here and one lump there, but then you go away for a few hours and you come back and one is bloated and has completely transformed. He says, that little invisible thing that you can't even see from the outside has completely altered the nature of this lump of dough. That is what a little sin will do in the camp. He says, you must call it out. You must recognize that this is unacceptable. Christians must be confrontational towards one another in that sense. I'm not saying to be a jerk. I am saying to graciously and lovingly point out that there are problems when you see them. If you see something, say something. Not in arrogance, but lovingly say, brother, I want to help you here. And I see that there's something the scripture teaches clearly that you are walking in the exact opposite direction. Can I help you here to serve and honor the Lord? The second false belief that we see is that openly disagreeing with people of other religions is unloving. We get this a lot in our public square, right? They call it the naked public square, where when you go to work, you're not a Christian, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Buddhist, you're just an employee. You don't take your religion to work with you anymore. You just, you're supposed to leave that stuff for Sunday mornings or whenever you worship and leave that stuff behind you. We live in a pluralistic society, and the culture seems to have a strong tolerance for just about every belief except those that come from historic Christianity. The example of the New Testament shows us the exact opposite. If if you truly love someone, how can you simply cheer them on as they run towards hell as fast as their legs can carry them? How can you continue to be silent when you see people of other belief systems and they say to you, this is what I believe. Do you just nod and say, well, I'm glad you found something that works for you. 
Imagine a doctor who looks at your blood work and they see that you have some kind of cancer that is developing in your abdomen and they know, look, this guy's already having a bad day. I can't tell them today. I can't say this to them because I know this will not make them very happy. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna kind of sit on this information. Maybe eventually I'll get there, but I just don't wanna be the bearer of bad news. And so what that doctor does is he comes back out to you and he says, hey, listen, you, you're doing okay. Just keep exercising like you've been doing and maybe work on your diet a little bit, but you're doing okay. No, no problem. We'll see you again in six months. And he sends you home. What kind of doctor is that? That doctor is negligent. That doctor is unloving. That doctor has failed in his responsibility and his duty. We know that there is a virus that every human being has, the virus of sin, one that we are born with, and if we have no transformation in our soul, we will die with it, not only in this world, but the next. And the Bible teaches us that there is only one way to God, and that is through being forgiven by his son, Jesus Christ, due to his death on the cross. And if we look at other people and we say, well, you know what? Mormonism isn't that far away. I mean, they do believe Jesus existed, I guess. And Jehovah's Witnesses, they kind of have, I don't know exactly what's going on over there, but at least they, they have some similarities to us. And, well, Roman Catholics, yeah, the same thing. You know, they, they go to church and they pray, right? It's the same kind of religion. And we just kind of allow these religions to kind of believe that they are the same with us. No, we must make clear distinction like John does. These things do not let you have God. And it is not a bad thing to confront those lovingly and graciously by evangelizing them. Every evangelistic event that you will ever do, every evangelistic conversation that you will ever have is necessarily confrontational. You are saying what you think will take you to heaven is actually a fast track to hell. I must, for the sake of your soul, share good news with you. What you think is good news is not. What you think is life is actually death. I'm telling you now, you have cancer. As a good doctor, I am informing you that you desperately need something. And I know it works because I have experienced the cure myself. Please come to Jesus. When Paul was preaching at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, it says that he pleaded with the people, urging them to trust in the Lord. And it says that he persuaded some. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.11, Paul shares part of his job description as a Christian. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Sharing the truth of the gospel is the greatest form of love that you can give to an unbeliever. Persuasion is necessarily confrontational. It means that you are saying to someone, stop believing in that direction, turn and believe in Christ. Here's another false belief that is commonly taught and it's mostly not being taught in churches, but it is infiltrating churches because everywhere else you look in our world today, it is being preached and proclaimed as loudly as people possibly can. It is the belief that rejecting sexually, driven, uh, sexually deviant lifestyles is unloving. If you don't agree with me, if you don't support me, if you don't applaud me in what I am doing, then you hate me, then you reject me then you don't really love me. The big statement that we hear today is that love is love. But John is teaching us that anything that does not align with the truth isn't really love. You should never be rude or unkind to anyone. That is not what I am suggesting. But you should also never affirm someone in their sin of any kind, regardless of what the sin might be. Do not applaud them as they go on their way merrily towards hell. 
Our world is filled with sexual sins of all sort. Now, I know we don't have childcare, and I'm attempting to be as, as um, limited in my vocabulary here as possible, but I will state simply for the sake of categories that adultery and fornication and pornography and homosexuality and transgenderism, all of this has been uh, systematically normalized in our culture, has it not? We say, see that every year there is a further pushing of the boundaries of what is applauded and what is accepted. In many cases, if you step out of even the slightest bit out of line with our culture, you find yourself against the wall of the proverbial firing squad. It's never loving to affirm a lifestyle that is dragging somebody to hell. It is never loving to say, I think what you're doing is just fine. You don't need to change. The thing to remember, however, is that convincing the sinner to stop sinning does not do any good for them unless they come to Christ. So we must understand that truth without love is brutality. Do not just go slam them with the truth saying, you must change your actions. Truth requires love. And love means seeking the good of that person's soul by showing them Christ who is worthy. Christ is worthy of giving up any kind of temporary earthly pleasure. Whatever your desire might be, Jesus is better, and the reward for knowing him and loving him is greater than anything that you can experience in this earth. I don't deny that people have particular persuasions or desires. Adultery, pornography, homosexuality, transgenderism, you name it, the list goes on. All of those things are things that come from a heart that loves to sin. And in every one of us, there is a heart that loves to sin. You are no different in terms of your eternal status without Jesus than they are. So we do not come at people judgmentally. We do not come at them argumentatively. But we do speak to them lovingly, saying there is a way that is better. And it goes through the cross. Please understand, you're not going to have to go searching for these battles. When I say that we must stand for the truth, I am not saying that you must go find a war to fight. I am saying the battle will come to you. I want to share with you just briefly about a man named Athanasius. Uh, he was a North African theologian many years ago. According to the accounts, he was about four feet tall, very short, and that he did not look great. He was, a, he was a very disfigured individual, but brilliant. In fact, some historians believe he was the only uh, one of the early church fathers who had the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, memorized. And we know that he might have because when he was exiled because of his beliefs, he went into the wilderness and began writing. He had no books. He had no scriptures to rely on. And during that time, he quoted almost the entire New Testament, almost every verse in his writings. And he did about one-third of the Old Testament by memory. So we know this man had a brilliant mind who knew the word very well. And there was a time when heresy about the nature of Jesus Christ and the Trinity came up. And he said, even if the whole world stands against this teaching of Jesus, that just means that Athanasius will stand against the world. That's where we get the name Athena or the term Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. This is the man that I named my third son after because I believe that he stood for the gospel and the Lord used him to preserve the truth throughout our uh, Christian history. The reason I bring this up is because he didn't go searching for the battle. The battle came to him. The heresy came to him, and he simply stood for the truth when that battle arrived. You're not going to have to go out and find these things. I'm not encouraging you to become a discernment blogger or an armchair theologian who goes out there and seeks out every confrontation you could possibly find. It is not your job 
to go on daily search and destroy missions of every person who has any kind of a slight disagreement theologically with you. And to add to that, John is not saying that we must separate from anyone who has a simple or basic level of disagreement with the practices we have as a church. There are many Christians who will disagree with us on many things. Every pastor I know, even the ones that I love and am closest to, I disagree with on some things in regards to understanding Scripture. And that is okay. But when it comes to the nature of the gospel, that is where we must draw our dividing line. John's letter teaches us to prepare. That little phrase, watch yourself, bears so much weight. You cannot defend a position that you don't understand, and you cannot guard against a false gospel if you don't know it. Consider the full armor of God. He does not say that this is used for you to go storm the gates of hell, as so often is used in certain circles in their prayers. Rather, he says that this is used in a defensive posture, so that you might stand firm and guard against the attacks of the evil one these attacks that will inevitably come for you. I am not calling you to be a crusader. I'm just calling you to be faithful, John says. Just know the gospel. Trust the gospel. Continue faithfully to per pursue Jesus by believing in the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel, the true, unadulterated, uncompromised gospel. Just love your Savior. And in doing so, when somebody comes at you with these false doctrines, these false teachings, graciously and lovingly share the truth but do not support them in their efforts in any way. So at that point, we're going to close this morning. I just want to leave you with one final word, that if you don't know the gospel, if you're here and you're saying, I just, I know the word, I just don't really know what you mean that Jesus saves. If that's you today, please do not leave this, this building without talking to someone that you see here, myself, about what it means to know Jesus in a saving way. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We pray that...